Check out my new show, Nicola Talent Presents Getting Away With Murder, live at Liberty Hall on September 20th. Brought to you by MCD. Tickets on sale at ticketmaster.ie. I've been around Jamaican gangsters. I've been around some Irish gangsters. I mean, from Ireland, I've been around Italians, made guys. This is the scariest guy I've ever been around. In the 1990s, it was very common in the Russian community for a business dispute to be settled by contract murder. I think all good crime books, all good crime movies, everything should be a cautionary tale. I mean, there really isn't a happy ending in that world. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. He's New York's most notorious living Russian mobster who made and lost a fortune from heroin trafficking, tax fraud and diamond smuggling. A gulag survivor hardened by the harsh punishments of the Soviet Union, Boris Biba Neyfeld became a gang enforcer and later a mob boss suspected of murder, torture and of doing business with the Mafia's five families. A larger-than-life, vodka-swilling, chess-playing pensioner, he has now finally opened up to award-winning author and journalist Douglas Century, whose book, The Last Boss of Brighton, is a kaleidoscope of stories of sex, drugs and murder. Today, I'm talking with Douglas about his time in the company of the old-school Russian, who survived to tell it all. He tells me about Biba's journey from Belarus to Brighton Beach about the 300 million fortune he earned and lost, and about the unlikely friendship they developed as they learned about the connections of their past. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. I wanted to ask you first uh, in regard to Boris Nayfield. Like, do you think whatever happened him in those Soviet gulags uh, marked him for life? Do you think that lack of humanity those prisoners were offered, you know, you hear stories of them having to eat rats living in freezing, awful conditions. Do you think that dehumanised them and maybe a lot of them turned them into what they became? Oh, sure. Um well, first of all, you know, he went to an orphanage, which, you know, it had a name, an internaut, which was like a boarding school. That was the first disconnect he had from uh, sort of normal family uh, upbringing. But by the time he was 18, yes, he was in a work zone. In Russian, they, weren't, they always use for prison is zona. And it was just brutal. Like you said, they, he could tell me to this day how many calories they got. The weakest tea, just this tiny little porridge. And somebody had to be on the outside willing to smuggle uh, pork fat, anything, candy, to the work zone. Otherwise, you'd starve to death. So it was a survival of the fittest, uh, unlike anything American prisons or British prisons, any Western European prisons. And they, all those guys, not just Boris, all those Soviet emigres who came to America said, it was, you know, they joked, but your prisons are like a country club. You know, we used to worry about how many calories can we get not to starve to death. And I get to an American prison. It's who controls the remote control on the color TV today. And are, are we having a, a billiards tournament or are we play, playing bocce ball? Yeah. It was just a different world. But yeah, there, there is a hierarchy in those Russian prisons of 
the men who are kind of the, the average men. Then there's the professional cr- criminals, which Boris kind of became one. And then below that, there's just these untouchables. And when he would tell me, he would say, Doug, you, know, you don't understand. In a, in a Russian prison, if, if you're gay, I mean, you sleep under the bed. I don't mean like, so it's just a very, mm. very brutal world. And yeah, I think he said to me, there was no attempt. The Soviets made no attempt to rehabilitate anyone. So he never knew a person who did time who came out a normal person, meaning reintegrated into society. He said all he did was learn to be a better criminal, more ruthless, more cunning, how not to leave fingerprints, how not to leave witnesses, things like that. So that's, I think, I think once you did those, especially think about how formative 18 to 21 is for a young man mm. or, or a young woman, but it's like, you know, Israelis or people who, uh, they all go to the army from 18 to 21 and that shapes them. So I look at it like this from 18 to 21, he was in one of the most brutal places I could ever imagine. And I don't think it was possible for him to become normal, quote unquote, after yeah. that. And of course, later on, the fact that they had survived, he and others had survived these Soviet prison camps, make them really hard to police because the same fear that many would have of going into prison, and particularly in the States, wasn't there. It was absent. They were well able to do their time with their hands tied behind their back. Um, So, yeah, and obviously we can't dwell and unfortunately don't have time to go into too much of that part and that time of USSR history, which is really fascinating, isn't it? And what's going on. But um, I was reading a piece that either you wrote or somebody interviewed you about your own family and how your grandparents actually came to the States through Ellis Island, where, of course, all the Irish went yeah. through as well. Yeah. The entry point into uh, what was to be the, you know, the glittering future. And they they settled and they worked, etc. But Boris was one of those that didn't get out, that he stayed behind and uh it was interesting the way you're 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 comparing and contrasting their lives. I felt I had to, you know, my favorite writer is James Joyce, you know, and he had to leave Ireland to write about Ireland. And I feel like those, uh, you know, those were my people. I, I had to kind of establish that in the book that I wasn't going to be writing about. But let me be honest, almost every criminal in the book is a Jewish uh, Russian-speaking Jewish criminal. It's 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 wrong to call them Russian. Russian was their culture, but they were almost all Jewish. That was my family, and I did have a lot of family that stayed behind, like Boris did, and they just got wiped out in the Holocaust. There none remained in that part of Russia. Boris's family had to go way. The Jews who did survive had to go way into the inland, like to Kazakhstan, because the Nazis mm-hmm. overran uh, Belarus. All those all those regions, basically, no Jews survived. But yeah, I kind of wanted to make that moment where I said, well, what would my family have done if we'd stayed and how almost every Jewish person learned to hustle. That doesn't mean they became violent criminals, but almost everybody was involved in some form of black and marketeering. I'm talking by the 1970s. They all saw that the system was failing and I'm not just Jewish people, almost everybody um, found a way to survive. And it's not for nothing that people like Roman Abramovich, many of these oligarchs, who became suddenly billionaires when communism collapsed, they had to have a little bit of capital. A lot of that was accrued in the black market or the gray market, you know. Um, mm. But yeah, I felt, you know, the Irish came came through Ellis Island, the Italians and the Jews came through, were all products of um, that same melting pot that America America at least <laughs> espouses as its official policy. But if you notice, all of us had this ethnic succession of 
uh, criminal groups. You know, Martin Scorsese yes. made a film, Herbert Asbury's book, The Gangs of New York. It's really about the early Irish gangsters and how they were they were connected to Tammany Hall and the political gangs. Then the Jews came, and we know about Meyer Lansky, but they were very dominant in the labor racketeering. The Italians came with their own southern the Sicilians and the and the Neapolitans, but I just look at it as a, a striving, the same way that the great the great generation of boxers were Jew, were first Irish and then the Jews and the Italians. So we all came from some place where we were trying to get a better life. And I yeah, I yeah. felt as an author, I felt I had to at least establish first of all because my my real last name is Century. It doesn't sound it's not like Goldberg or Shapiro, Cohen. I had to kind of maybe announce. Look, I'm from this world too, and I didn't want to judge him too harshly. I mean, look, he's a reprehensible human being by any kind of check. You make the checklist of things you've done: been to prison, been a heroin trafficker, you know, accused of murders. All the, I said, I didn't want to say, yeah, he's a horrible human being, and why am I writing about him? I actually wanted to say, what did Jews have to do to survive in that Soviet system, and what would my family have done if we'd been left behind? You know, um, mm-hmm. just it was. It was yeah, no, it's. Rhetorical device, you know. <laughs> no, it's it's really interesting, and I always think that you know to write something worthwhile about criminals, you do have to delve right back to the beginning and see what formed them, and you know what made them what they were. Um, the you know you talk about the Irish going into Ellis Island, creating the Irish gangs. Of course, they wouldn't have had the education that a lot of them coming from Soviet countries, the Jews coming in from Soviet countries had, that I presume the Italians wouldn't have either. They would have been poor Sicilians and kind of, you know, coming from from much more, I suppose, uh, basic backgrounds than... But Boris himself, did he have an education? Was he sure. coming with something? He's obviously well, very clever. What what I had, I would have to say, is, so neither did the Jews. Like, my grandparents were of that generation of Meyer Lansky, and they... They all came without much English, but they learned. I mean, the one advantage the Irish did have was the gift of gab. I mean, English was the the spoken language, even if there wasn't a lot of education behind it. But the Irish formed up those early mobs in in a lot of ways to form protection societies because they were discriminated. No Irish need apply, all that stuff. Same applied for the Jews uh, uh, and the Italians. They formed these inter-ethnic uh, you know, protection groups, basically, often shaking down their own neighborhoods. So I see Boris, what was very interesting is I kind of saw this as that film, um, Once Upon a Time in America, right? Uh, but this takes place in the 1980s. It's just removed by generations. What makes this Soviet emigrate Jewish crime wave, and it really was a crime wave, unique is that many of these guys had university degrees. Boris didn't, because Boris would have probably gone to university. His brother became an engineer, but he was in prison. <laughs> so he came out and he, to just keep the cops off his back, he went to a culinary school. You had to, it was a, it was a society you know, socialist paradise, workers paradise, you had zero unemployment. So either you had to go into the military from 18 to, you know, on, or uh, be enrolled in university. Boris, when he came over, the, the original boss of Brighton Beach was a man named Yevsey Agron. He had a university degree from uh, Leningrad. Um, another guy that Boris worked with, Marat Belagula, he was a, these guys like to embellish. They would say, oh, he had a PhD in economics. He didn't have a PhD, but he did have, Marat Belagula had a, had a degree in economics. Boris, Boris did enough time in prison that he had read all of the classics, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy. And I mean, having been a literature major, I would really ask him, well, what did you think of uh, uh, what happened in Crime and Punishment? And he would say, Raskolnikov is a very abnormal character. And I realized he's extremely well read. 
So this crime wave was like anything before and probably will never happen again because the Soviet Union educated these guys in a very high level. They were also bilking the system at a really high level and they'd been to some of the toughest prisons. So as you said at the top, they weren't afraid of American prisons at all. It was kind of like our laws uh, didn't scare them. So I don't see where we're ever going to have another um, crime wave where you have guys who've actually gone to the University of Leningrad. You, well, Leningrad doesn't exist as a city, but for example, Trinity College or to have yes. that level of education, but also be, these were not white collar, collar criminals. These were very violent men, like willing to get in shootouts. So it was a very unique crime wave that I think, it, and it kind of explains for their audacity and some of the scams they did were absolutely like the billions they stole in gasoline tax, petrol, you call it, right? They stole billions for 10 years, uh, billions a year for 10 years. And the feds could not figure out how they were doing it. It was a daisy chain scheme. So, but th those were skills perfected in survival in the Soviet Union, because any little chink in the armor of the state where you could steal, there was a joke someone told me after I wrote the book. Sure. We used to say, you're not stealing from your job. What's wrong with you? Because everybody would pilfer something from their work. It was just, I don't know. It was a hardened society that was, nobody believed by the 1970s when Boris got out in 1970, nobody believed in communism anymore. No, even the communist party itself, they all knew it was just a way to grift. You know, uh, some, some people had a privileged status and the average person had to wait, you know, in a line just to take a bath. I mean, it was unbelievable mm -hmm. when I, when I worked with a translator on this book and he would say, no, it was the same way in the seventies for me in Moscow, we would get one bath a week. And I said, you're joking. He said, no. And we had no deodorant and we had no idea how bad we smelled. We didn't, we didn't know what, and I said, this is what it was like for like educated people in the Soviet union. So yeah, but they, they were highly educated for, as, as a crime group. Yes. They were very sophisticated and they mm. used to, Boris would talk about the Italians. Like when they go to prison, they all hang out together, the, the Italian mafia and the Russians. Cause there's just, it's, it's racial. It's like white stay with whites. And, but he would say, oh, these Italians, like he, he, he viewed them as dumb. <laughs> right, right. And I would say, well, he also thought they were weak because they, they I said, why were you, he had a few confrontations with Italian mafioso, uh, mafiosi. And uh, I said, why were you unafraid at that meeting? And he goes, because he has everything to lose. He has kids in college and legitimate businesses. I'm like, a, I'm, a, I'm, fresh off, I'm fresh off the boat, so to speak. The Russians were hungrier and they, and they didn't have the established ties to American society. But in many ways, in some of their most successful ventures, they did partner with the Cosa Nostra, just so people understand. It was, uh, well, Britain has a similar thing, you know, with the craze and these 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 crime groups. I know you've got your Kinahan group over there. They partner up, they do, absolutely, especially if there's kind of, you know, if there's something in it for everybody. Yeah, I saw your, I mean, everybody's reporting about the super cartel. I wanted to talk, if we get, if we have time about that, because that's just globalization. And that's what Boris was a heroin trafficker and a, and a cocaine trafficker. And of course, he had partners who were from South America. Uh, he had partners in Africa because it's just geography. I mean, it, you know, if you're going to get the cocaine, you can't, the easiest way to get it to Europe, at least for him, was through Odessa and, and for, for the Irish uh, gangsters, it's get it up through Morocco, Morocco into Spain. So I would read these stories about the super cartel that's going, the, all the big news over there in, in the UK and in Ireland, right? And I looked, I said, yeah, but it's just geography. Ireland doesn't have uh, access to cocaine. <laughs> They've got to have partners. It's, all, it's, <laughs> it's also probably the simplest business plan in the world that you just bring people together who are bringing something different to the table. Somebody Absolutely. brings logistics, somebody brings the roots, somebody brings the... Yeah. laundering facilities. That's it. Yeah. Um, 
and you make more money because you cut out costs if you're all in it together. But anyway, um, so let's set the scene for the start of this tale, which is extraordinary. And Biba, of course, Boris's nickname, he's known to family and friends, I think, is Biba. We're talking late, the, the end of the 1970s into the beginning of the 1980s. He, he, he moves to America yep. and settles in Brighton Beach, which is... Um, where and why was that area of Brooklyn, you know, where he, he was immediately drawn to? Was it where his other people were? OK, well, that's that's a twofold question. I'll answer the second part first. Brighton Beach is on the southern southern shore of Brooklyn. Uh, Brooklyn is a massive borough. It's, you know, if it was its own city, which it used to be, it's four million people. It's huge. But Jewish Jewish people like my mother was born in Coney Island, which is a famous another beach part right na- down the border. I love Coney Island. I visited for the, it for the first time when I was over staying in Brooklyn just before uh, COVID. And I just thought it was the most charming yeah. part and, of New York I've ever been. And this I loved it. big wide boardwalk. So it's actually fashioned when they did build it, they were developing Brooklyn. Brighton Beach was really uh, modeled after Brighton in England. They they said, hey, let's have a nice seaside resort. And Jews tended to go, I don't know exactly why they went to Coney Island, but Brighton Beach was in the, in the 1920s or 30s. It had an established Jewish community. Um, so when they started to let the Jews out, there was pressure being put by the United States government because the Soviet Jews, if people are of a certain age remember, they were not allowed to practice Judaism. They were, they were feeling the pressure of anti-Semitism. And there was enough pressure put on by the U.S. government to start it was called the Jackson Vanek Amendment. Um, it went through the Congress, and by the early seventies, they started to release Jews. Boris was at the peak year, nineteen seventy nine, and he gets out actually because he was stealing from the state in an excessive amount, <laughs> which meant ten thousand rubles, which wasn't much, meant the firing squad. And I was just I was rereading my book last night, and I said, "Oh yeah, that was the phrase, the supreme measure of punishment." And the cops would use that. They, it, you know, if they saw a nice guy driving, a guy who was too young to afford a car and have all this furs, they would just stop and just openly shake you down. And there was no bribery in cash. You'd have to go get cognac and chocolates. But that was just the system. And he said, I could feel the pinchers uh, closing and I knew it would be a matter of time because he'd had friends who went before the firing squad. I mean, there's no questions asked. If they proved that you had, you know, uh, 90,000 rubles and you couldn't show how you earned that, Boom, you went to the firing squad. It was to deter theft from the state. So when they got out, they would go through uh, Vienna. And many did actually go to Western Europe. They would go to Vienna first, and then they would spend about a month in Rome. And officially, they were all supposed to be going to Israel. It was a family of family reunification policy. But but once you're in Rome, you could switch your visa. And he told me, oh, the U.S. was where everybody wanted to go. Australia was good, but it was a year. Canada was a little longer. They just went where they could get to. Once they would get to America, Brighton Beach was the Mecca. To some degree, some went to Boston, another great Irish mm-hmm. community. But the, the more educated class, the classical musicians and the professors have a community in Boston. The more working class, the rougher people went to Brighton Beach. And it's strictly a matter of geography and language. Uh, the geography, it's on the ocean. So if people are watching the news now, Odessa, which is actually in Ukraine, was a very um, heavily Jewish city. So they called it Little Odessa because for the people from the South Ukraine, it reminded them of, you're right by the ocean. You can smell the, mm. you know, you go out for your your smoked fish, which they love and all that. And you have the salt breeze coming. It really is like uh, 
uh, reminiscent of home, I guess. But by the time Boris arrived, there was 40,000 Russian speakers. And if you go there today, it's just astounding. You can, the signs are in Cyrillic, that there's newspapers in, in Russian. Everybody is speaking Russian, so you don't have to assimilate. And if you imagine it, Russian is a, you know, English is a tricky language. If you, they don't even have our alphabet the way uh, an Italian or a Jew, Italian or Jewish immigrant at least could have a chance to try to learn English. It's very difficult. So Boris is even to, the, to having spent most of his life in the USA, his English is so rudimentary. He learned most of it in prison. Right. <laughs> so, so people, people joke, like there are still these old timers who know no English. And somebody said to me, oh, there's a joke. You know, this, this kid, Americanized kid is asking his grandfather in Brighton beach. He says, Hey, grandfather, when are you going to learn English? And he says, in Brighton Beach, who would understand me? Like, what's the point? It's everything is being handled. So it was a beautiful little spot where they could go. And then also Russians of that generation were very distrustful of the police because the police were the KGB for them. So then they started to do shakedowns. You had to pay protection rackets and everybody would pay because they're not going to go to the cops. So it, it became this enclave um, uh, that was very unique. And it still is now it, it's very low crime. But it's a very charming place to visit because you can kind of experience the Russian bathhouses and the Russian, the Russian, you know, authentic Russian supper clubs. They're very big on this gaudy. Um, for us who've kind of grown up in the West, it's like they almost put on these Las Vegas style shows at the supper clubs. It's over the top. And I realized yeah. it was there. I wrote this line in the book that uh, I said it was like a fever dream of Western opulence filtered through a Slavic ses- sensibility, meaning it was never how Russia was. It was how they imagined America would be for them. <laughs> and if you go now, you're kind of like, it's almost like crazy tacky. Like you'll see chandeliers. Like nobody has these kind of decor anymore. Velvet. But that's their idea of success in America. So that's where he arrived. And that was that, that's a, that was the kind of... Uh, home base for the Russian, the, at least the Russian organized crime groups in America, that, that was their main home base because it was the biggest enclave of Russian speakers in North America at all. But you get the best vodka there, that stuff you can drink without putting any soda or ice into it. Just Oh, they do. Brought, he brought me a bottle the other last time I saw him, of it. it was called Beluga Noble. But, you know, I realized something like Dostoevsky, one of the greatest writers, would say, you must start your day every day with with vodka, but always brown bread. And I came to realize that vodka is just part of their meal. Like a lot of Russians will start their day with. So when they drink, like Boris, if he was going away to prison, he had a party. He always had to have a a good exo cognac because cognac was a status symbol in the Mm -hmm. uh, in the Soviet Union. So he only drinks cognac. But yeah, the Russians, they tend to they tend to have their a lot of vodka like a few, a few shots. Last time I saw Boris, he said, my first toast is to dog. I said, how many, how many toasts are we doing? Like, this is going to be a crazy <laughs> night. I don't think I can hang with these. And I thought I could drink with Russians and it, it was a, an epic hangover, no. let's say. <laughs> and sorry, as just slightly digressing here, but the brown bread do like for the breakfast with the vodka. And I'm only asking this for, you know, for practical f- work reasons, <laughs> not anything else. But, so do they dip the bread into the vodka and let the, no. I think it's what just to, to sop it up. Well, there's a, there's this, this, uh, another way they do vodka is this little, it's cured pork fat, almost like bacon called sallow. And people will tell me they, they do a vodka and then they chase it with sallow. It's almost like salt and vinegar chips or something. It makes you thirsty. So you have another vodka. I don't know why uh, Dostoevsky preferred rye bread. It was, I think just to, so you're not drinking on an empty stomach, maybe. 
Yeah, but, I chose something but on it, top but of he, if you if you look up Dostoevsky's strange work habits, it was always he can no, he was an alcoholic. So let's just be honest, it wasn't a help. <laughs> <laughs> let's not take this advice then. He was also that was another thing I thought I'd studied. I knew all of Dostoevsky's novels, but Boris, by the end of the book, he starts telling me there's a fantastic novel called The Gambler. And I looked it up and he was like, Right, I never read that one. He said Dostoevsky was a big gambler like I am. All Russians of a certain class love to gamble. Dostoevsky Dostoevsky had gone to Paris and lost all this money playing uh, Baccarat or something. And so he was hugely in debt. So he goes to his publisher and he says, I'll write you a novel in like eight weeks. And he wrote this novel, which is a really great novel, in eight weeks just to pay off his debt and his and his drinking. <laughs> so, <laughs> but Boris's takeaway is he's just like me. He loves to drink and gamble. And <laughs> I was like. Okay. Well, I'm glad you see some similarities. And Boris being 74 now and quite extraordinary, he survived what we'll go on to talk about over the the decades after his arrival and and the incredible um, career, I suppose we'll call it, he built up uh, in the States. But he's 74. Is he still lashing into the vodka? I'm going to get off the vodka thing shortly. But Oh, my God. I recorded an interview with him. uh, It was about... 10 in the morning where I'm at, I was with his friend. So he's friends with this radio host who he was once contracted to kill. It's a crazy story. I won't, I, I got him save a Kaplan and they're now really good friends. And I had oh. coffee with them both. It was just a business thing. Uh, one of Seva's in the 1990s, it was very common in the Russian community for a business dispute to be settled by contract murder. So one of Seva was a very educated man, a radio host and one of his competitors, um, or, uh, contracted where he said, Boris, it wouldn't be such a bad idea if Seva was off the air. So then he had to stop. It was right before cell phones. So he would get pages and, Oh, you know, Seva is is hosting a beauty pageant at Rasputin. And then Boris would arrive. There's too many people. Anyway, Boris went away to prison and then he goes, we must go have coffee with Seva. And I'm sitting there saying, I can't believe this. This you two two guys in your seventies. You were contracted to kill him, and now you're buddies. And is it really true that when you met him, Boris, you said, "Seva, you're such a nice guy. I couldn't have lived with myself if I'd killed you." And, and he said, "Yeah, I did say that." But the other thing was, the man who contracted to kill him was already dead. So who's going to pay me? <laughs> it, was, it was very businesslike. <laughs> it was just like they say, like in The Godfather. It was business, not personal. But yeah, um, yeah. yeah he still is a drinker. Geez, so we were. Yeah, he's a drinker. He he's mellowed a bit because he's you know he's more into weed, <laughs> okay, <laughs> which I, okay. I, he gets very very violent when he his history of violence. A lot of it was you know with alcohol, and he's a he's a funny guy when he's when he's uh, smoking weed. I, I I don't know Brighton Beach well enough, but I was out there and he and a couple of guys were smoking weed, and I said I'm fine. I don't want to be out of control and not know what's going on with you two. But it, it, they were then giggling and telling jokes. So to see this guy with these crazy tattoos of skulls and all this coded stuff in the Russian, to see him like smoking weed and giggling, or not giggling, but they were play, they love to play cards, by the way. They're Russians. They just sit there and play cards. He's a good chess player, too. Like all of these Russians, they kind of surprised me at their level of intellect, you know, because they're no getting around it. They're brutes. They're really thuggish guys. But yeah. You know. I mean, they're they're look the Russians like even in areas in Europe like the Costa del Sol and in Amsterdam, perhaps in the Netherlands, the Russians are feared. I mean, they only have to be mentioned that they're coming to the table in a dispute or that they're somewhere within, and everybody, everybody's still afraid of them. I mean, everybody, not normal people. I mean, people living in that underworld and gangland and major other criminal gangs are still terrified of the Russians. Yeah. They are always seen as being 
just that step more savage than everybody else or more capable? Absolute ruthlessness uh, that is inbred after years of, like we started off talking about the the prison system, the stuff that Mm -hmm. guys had to do to survive in the prison system. And it's, uh, Boris would tell me these stories that I thought were apocryphal or maybe just jokes, but then I would check it with somebody else. I didn't put this one in the book, but he said, you know, in the time of the gulags, when, when three men, let's say, were going to escape, if two men were going to escape from a gulag, you must take the biggest guy with you, a big, maybe a guy who's a little fatter if he's still got some fat. I said, why? It's, it's 5,000 kilometers as the next civilization. You might have to eat him. And he would just tell me this with a straight face. I said, cannibalism. Okay, so you bring a guy, a, a dupe, you bring the fat guy along to kill him and eat him uh, for, uh, <laughs> along the way because otherwise you'll starve to death. But I, I think <gasps> that... I, I mean, and you just talk to people and say, are these stories true? I mean, well, yeah, we all used to say it. I don't know if it's based on reality. Um, they're feared because they had nothing to lose. I think mm. it's it's all, you know, you know this. It's the same in Ireland. The The person who has the least to lose is the most dangerous person in any situation. For sure. So actually, like the Italian mafia in New York, there was an enclave in the Bronx. It's a very Irish neighborhood nearby. But this now they've been supplanted by the Albanians. The Albanians came and they're, it's the poorest country in Europe. And so a mm-hmm. lot of the, you'll go to New York, a lot of the really nice Italian restaurants, you'll find out, oh, they're really Albanians because the cuisine, they know, they know how to make the Italian cuisine, but they're just hungrier and they're more, they're more ruthless because they're coming from, yeah. from nothing. And I think there's, it's hard to imagine coming from less than the Soviet Union when even the Jews who got out, they were only allowed a pittance, a tiny amount. They could, they had a little, so they had to come to America with nothing. And just mm. claw their way up somehow. But yeah, I think they're feared for for good reason. I don't want to yeah. say you wouldn't want to cross. You wouldn't want to cross Russians because unlike the Italian mafia, which does have some structure and rules, like you can't a made guy can't kill. He must check with his boss. There are there is none of that structure. People have this this misconception of the Russian mafia. It's like a amoebas. It's a bunch of amorphous groups that will come together for, for shared jobs and shared purposes, but they don't have to answer to any hierarchy. So that's mm-hmm. also a, there's a lot of backstabbing and and double crossing and you know whereas the, if the Italians do that they kind of have this uh, military structure, which again Boris used to laugh and say. The Italians with these ranks, soldier, captain, we used to laugh about that. I said, why? He goes, I want to do whatever job I want to do. I don't want to check with somebody. Why do I have to check? They used to find that very, to the the Russian mentality as organized criminals, which they were organized, but they found that extremely restrictive. Like, why should I have to check with this guy above me? We're all men. Mm -hmm. So their, their, Mm -hmm. their uh, philosophy was if you do a bank job or or a heist, they did a lot of heists in Antwerp of millions of dollars of diamonds. We all split it up. It was just everybody eats the same and you do have a leader of the crew, but, and then you'd might come together for a different job. So it was very hard for the FBI to put them on charts for the feds or Interpol. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the crimes were actually taking place in Europe and they would always try to make it like the Italians, but it doesn't exist that way. There are no bosses. And I mean, there's leaders and there's guys who are strong, but it seems to change week to week or job to job. And of course, harder to take out then from a policing point of view, because who do you go for? Like, you know, you, you know, when you have a structure, you obviously want to take the head off that snake and, and you know, yep. obviously take out the middlemen. But um, it makes it even harder. Like Boris, by the way, is just too way too cutesy a name for this guy. 
because <laughs> it just, you know, it makes him sound like a bit of a cuddly. And you're also <laughs> describing him a little bit, okay? He's sort of funny little laughing, little weed smoking. Oh, that's but he's one, not like that. That's that one side, but like his... But describe the, him, Douglas, because for people who haven't, and anybody should just Google him, by the way, Boris oh. Mayfield, and have a look at him, because I've never seen anything quite like him. Okay, so he's probably the... And I've been around Jamaican gangsters. I've been, I've been around some Irish gangsters. I mean, from Ireland, I've been around... Italians, made guys. This is the scariest guy I've ever been around. He's got this cold bloodedness to him. He's not, he's about 170 centimeters. He's like, uh, what's that? Five foot seven. He's not, but he's incredibly strong. I mean, he, during COVID, he chopped down an entire forest in Moscow. He was sending me pictures of his, he was a wrestler. He was a boxer. Um, he's covered in these tattoos, which it's like a pictorial autobiography for Russian criminals where you did your time. The scorpions mean things. And he's never been convicted of murder, but there's four skulls on his chest. And I asked him once, like, can you put things on your chest that don't, that you didn't earn? And he said, absolutely not. Like you'll get killed. He doesn't have the stars, which is the Vori Zakoni, the stars on the, if you've seen Eastern promises and all that. And actually there were some young punks in Moscow not long ago who, who tried to, act tough and puts these stars. And there was a wave of murders not long ago, like, I mean, five years ago. And they, they were trying to figure out why were these guys getting killed? It's because they put those stars on themselves, trying to look like bad guys and get into nightclubs. And the voters, that's, that is the secret Explain society. Explain the stars for us now, okay. because I always thought it was the teardrops. No, teardrops means you've killed people. The stars... Yeah. So this is this whole, you know, we'd have to do multiple episodes. This this is the Vodizakoni. These are the thieves. They call it thieves-in-law, but that sounds like your mother-in-law. It's legalized thieves. They are thieves who are allowed to steal, and they come out of the Stalinist gulags. They are sworn never to work an honest job. They will never, they're not supposed to marry. They, they have their own code. And once they're inducted into the code, they have usually two stars, uh, five pointed stars on their shoulder blades. You can Google that. It's Vori, V-O-R-Y, Zaconi, um, thieves in law. Boris actually had the chance. He was af- asked to be that uh, by another thief in law. And he said, I don't want this because you're not allowed to sell drugs. There's many rules. Again, Boris didn't want all these rules to apply for, him. but he still has all these tattoos. That's, you know, I, I don't know what that's. He has a cobra's head. And somebody asked me, you know, if you took this to a Russian criminologist, they would tell you everything. And, and I said, I don't really want to know all the things that he's, a, he's confessing to that he wasn't convicted of. But um, yeah, he is a physically, he was the enforcer. So if you imagine when he first came over, he was the guy that nobody wanted to see because he would come and say, you must pay, you must pay, you must pay. His, his, he, up until the 2000s, he was going over to Russia and ext- he would call it money extraction, which is another way of saying collecting. And if somebody, so let's say some guy was doing business in Russia and he had a, a I don't know, a factory and he, his partner, this actually happened, a partner ripped him off to the tune of like $5 million dollars. Boris and his crew, but usually it was Boris, would go say, we'll go get you your money, but we take half. So he would go get to the $5 million and take $2.5 million. Well, there's a pretty good chance you might get killed because someone's gonna <laughs> not going to give up that money willingly. He's a very fearsome guy. There's a scene in the book, actually, where he and a, another really tough guy are out in Los... I think they're in Los Angeles, yeah. And they're just drinking and some younger Russian punks see the two girls that they're with and say, hey, you girls, come over and sit with us. And Boris says in Russian, you, you came with us, stay with us. And they they made some snarky remarks. So Boris didn't even have a gun. He just grabbed the steak knife off the table and he said, let's teach these young punks a lesson. And he went to go cut the kid's throat. He grabbed him by the hair and the owner's wife put her hand there and she was cut. And I said, Boris, you were really ready to cut? He goes, yes. 
it was so stupid of me because I didn't understand at that time that the state of California had the death penalty. And I said, oh, that's the only takeaway. And then he said, I also didn't understand how much money you need to go on the run. Like if I had done that, I would need millions of dollars to to create a new identity. So he didn't say it would have been wrong for me to slit this kid's throat. It was just, first of all, I would have been facing the death penalty. Second of all, you know how much money it takes to to create false passports. and Yeah, you're back to the business head there. But another thing, so he's a very scary guy. He's also a guy that is known by law enforcement there was a daylight murder of one of his former partners in antwerp uh total execution shot in the back of the head a guy that owed boris money boris was interviewed interpol came over and they said well how could he have been there well he didn't actually have to be there he could have had somebody do it there was another very gruesome murder of a guy that tried to kill boris named fema laskin in munich and they said this was this was one of the goriest murders they'd ever seen he was gutted like a fish on top of his his mercedes so the the crimes that he is suspected of are just and they're they're hands on they're they're stabbings mm-hmm. they're um, but he always has a way of, you know, getting out of it. He always explains it mm-hmm. to the police. And I, I, it's like, you know, when they say in poker, when a guy has a little, a tick, a tell, because when I would ask him, what really happened to, to Rachmel Brandwein? And he would say, God punished him. Whenever he tells me God punished him, then I think, are you saying subconsciously that you think you're God? Or are you just really saying, he would always say that God, God took his justice. And I was like, okay, I yeah, won't ask any yeah. more questions at that point. <laughs> But no, um, he's not a sweet, charming. He can, this guy, Savit, that I told you about, who said, uh, I really, I, he read the book. This is the guy that was the target of his assassination. He said, you really got inside his psychology because he's at once extremely frightening and dangerous, but also very charming. He's mm-hmm. so, he is a real, he's a charmer. Like he's always got these girlfriends. He's extremely um, fun to be around. Like he's not one of these dour, I mean, you've, You've written a lot about crime. Some of these gangsters are just not, they're not uh, pleasant people to be around. Boris is a guy that- I have met some of them that are that, that have that charm, that are really good fun to be around as well. I mean, there is that definitely is some sort of a personality type that's within it. I'm sure we could get a psychologist to give us some insight into it. But yeah, they can be great and they have these two lives then. They can love their families and they can be so, you know, they can be fabulous family guys and yet they can turn around and slash another man's son's throat there's something strange people ask well why why are people fascinated by this stuff and i i was actually it was in london i was being interviewed and i said uh you know again another connection i have to great britain i had family my grandfather grew up in hackney so hackney was you know there was a lot of gangsters in that area and i said well look you know look at the craze the craze had these had this nightclub right the series of nightclubs and you'd see Frank Sinatra was there and the, the boxers. People loved to be around and they dressed well. I mean, they were savage. They were vicious guys. You know, they were they would they would again do hands-on murders, right? But people kind of want to be around this this whiff of danger when they don't really see the the dark side of it fully. There's mm-hmm. there is an attraction, I think, not just for women. A lot of men want to be around that because they just think Wow, I wonder what this guy would do to protect me or what would, (laughs) but trust me, you want to get close to this. I've done this enough. You want to get close to these guys if you want to observe it, but don't get too close. You never want to owe these guys money. You never want to humiliate them. And it's very quick how, I mean, I know the code of being around various gangsters. There's certain things you just can't do. If you speak respectfully, if you know how to hang out with them, but there's certain lines and there's even in Russian, there's just words that you just get killed for using the wrong word which I can, mm-hmm. 
you know, they, they're very homophobic. And there's this, uh, it's a, going back to our first, conver- our, our first part of the conversation. In the Russian prisons, if you're the passive homosexual, meaning you've been raped, you're called a rooster, a petuch, which in Russian just means, it just means rooster. But in organized crime, to call someone a petuch, it's like you must kill him on the spot. And there's a famous story of a guy that worked with Boris and he was playing cards in an illegal ca- casino in, in, um, it's not in the book, so I'm not giving away anything. He's playing cards in an illegal casino, which are called a Catran. They would bet hundreds of thousands of dollars on these card games. And this guy was losing and he calls this guy a hitman. He says, you are Patuch. And he goes, I'm Patuch. And he just takes out his 38 and blows his brains away right there on the table. So I asked, well, what happened? Like, did, did you run? And he goes, no, no, we, we got rid of the gun and we just waited for the police to come. And I said, huh? Well, we knew they're going to come. So his head was on the table. We just waited. And then we said, we didn't see the guys that were wearing masks. They came, came and robbed us. And I says, everybody at the card game just acted like nothing happened with this dead guy's but it all happened because he said the word rooster, which you could use in a schoolroom in Russia and say, oh, the word for the word for a cock or a rooster is, is Paduch. But if you use that in the wrong context in Russian organized mm-hmm. crime and I asked Boris, why do you have to kill somebody? He goes, because if you don't, you are accepting that it's true. And I'm like, wow. OK, so. Well, that's you don't interesting joke. because it means there are rules. Well, th- yeah. Or there's lines in the sand. Yeah, there. Yes, absolutely. There are rules, but there's not a hierarchical structure of I work for you and you work for me, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, there's rules. There's there's a code of conduct. So the the guys with the stars on their shoulders we talked about, the Vorazakoni, they actually are sometimes called thieves within a code, and they have a very strict code. Code of mm-hmm. conduct. You cannot work. You cannot this. You cannot. You cannot be around homosexuals. You cannot have a family member who's in the police. Yeah, that's a code, but. Mm. It's just, it's a code that is so lethal if you don't know the yeah. rules. And so I always oh tell gosh. people, if you want to get around any of these groups, I mean, you got your guys over there, the Kinahans. If you want to get around any of these guys, you better know what rules they play under. Because it might be fun mm-hmm. to go to the boxing matches that they promote and all that. But you better know also who who not to offend and how uh, what they might take offense to. Because the consequences could be your life, Right. And this is mm-hmm. this is true of all organized crime in every country I've ever seen is that they can be honorable within their society, but absolutely deadly if you don't understand the boundaries. So that is absolutely. the I would I would say boundaries more than rules. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. Now, uh, Boris, he in the early 80s, when he arrived in Brooklyn, he joined uh, another gang as an enforcer, obviously because of his strength and his that sort of, he sounds like a big bear of a man. Um, but he goes on to kind of basically run his own yeah, gig he, and he becomes the most famous Russian mobster, basically, in uh, in New York and and the the kind of longest living, really, one of them as well. It's astounding if you looked at sort of an actuary table of what are the what are the probabilities of a man? He was shot with an Uzi. He's been he had a bomb planted under his car uh, or a grenade. He multiple. uh, There was a wave of assassinations of organized crime figures in Moscow and Leningrad after the fall of, uh, you know, in the 1990s. It was just all hell broke loose. And multiple times, guys, snipers, that was the big thing. They had these trained snipers who had been in the Russian military. So a lot of guys were taken out by snipers and they were. So he counts it at five times. He actually said to me at the start of the book, I shouldn't be alive. And I didn't know if that was a double entendre, like I'm not a good person. Or he says five times my enemies tried to take me out. So it's astounding that he is alive. 
um, he has this absolute sense of survival. And I think that comes from being orphaned. He's extremely of the, what's the word? He uses this word a lot, even in English, cunning. He'll describe, it's a compliment. He'll say, so-and-so was very cunning. He's very cunning. He figures out situations very quickly. So he survived a lot, some by luck, but some just by, you just, you know, some people are, are born with a different gene where they just know how to react quickly. Um, he, he was probably the most feared guy. Some would say not the brains, meaning usually other guys would use him always as protection. Um, there's a concept, you know, the Irish had it in America. I'm sure they had it in Ireland, uh, paying protection to keep your business afloat. And in Russia, it's called a roof, a kresha. And now people don't understand, even to this day in Putin's Russia, every business must pay some organized crime group, a kresha, a roof up to 30%. So, their bread and butter when they first came over, Boris worked for Yves Seagron, who was suspiciously murdered in 1985. And Boris was a suspect, which he assures me he didn't do. And actually, that's one I don't think he really, he viewed him as a father figure. But uh, initially, yeah, every, they would shake down their own. So a very lucrative market for the Russian organized crime were the diamond dealers. You know, there's a section in New York City of people have been it's a great place to go shopping for, you know, baubles and stuff on the 47th street. It is mostly Hasidic Jews. Um, and they do multi-million dollar deals on handshakes, right? So it's a really, <laughs> it's a great venue for money laundering. It's also, they're very, very prone to getting extorted because you'll need protection from people like us. Other people like us will come along if you don't pay us. And then Boris was based, his actual high point was over there, uh, in Europe. He was in Antwerp. He had a villa in Antwerp. Again, I would ask, well, why were you guys based in Antwerp? The biggest diamond quarter, the largest diamond section in, in all the world, far more than New York City is Antwerp. And the at the diamond quarter where he had a villa, um, he was actually taken down by Interpol. They were watching him for years because they he had counterfeit operations in the UK. He had all sorts of stuff going on. They really, they really were smart. He and this Romani, uh, Polish, Italian name, um, Fancini. He's another mysterious guy. They, they set up a company called M&S. They were an import-export business based out of Antwerp. And they were right at the right place, right when communism fell. The people, are, people younger than me will not know this, but suddenly this entire system fell and there was nothing on the shelves. I mean, there was no food, but there were all these generals and communist party officials who wanted television sets and sofas. So... Boris was basically the muscle, uh, the muscle end of this business. And they would, they supplied, they set up, I think, six or seven different stores in, in Russia where you could buy consumer goods. But uh, Boris's main job was most of the deals were done in cash. So they had a store in Stockholm. They had a, they had a store in Berlin. Boris would go and <laughs> he would go literally carry suitcases filled with cash with euros <laughs> and bring it back, bring it back to Antwerp safely because he was the guy they trusted not to get robbed. But nobody would touch him. The, the, the other thing I would say that the Russians were very, very good at probably because we are Jewish and there really is, you know, so they operated at one time, Burroughs was, was in Sierra Leone uh, mining conflict diamonds, uh, which then were brought up to Antwerp. They were based in um, Berlin. They had operations back in, in Russia. They had operations in Odessa. They had operations in Bangkok. They were smuggling uh, pure China white heroin. And I always look at it like Russians, especially Russian Jews, they don't see any kind of borders. Why, why shouldn't they go somewhere and do business? Because there's money to be made, you know, 
they don't they don't have that sense that a lot of other ethnic groups would be well let's stay in our little lane here where we know how things work they're kind of fearless about that stuff like let's just i'll go to africa boris was in the jungle he was like i was out in the bush with a hand with a machine gun and a revolver making sure that the workers didn't steal uh, they were panning alluvial diamonds and i was like so you were basically just guarding this diamond mine he goes, yeah, it was the weirdest thing. He got covered in boils. He had no idea that he wasn't supposed to swim in the river. And I just thought, what is this guy from the Soviet Union doing thinking he could just live for six months in Africa? Like, it's like, that's a different kind of fearlessness. It's like, you, you'll just sure. go, you'll go anywhere. A world without borders for them. That was, was going to ask you really about money because, you know, he's involved in diamond, uh, in the diamond industry. Um, he is in prostitution, he gets into contraband cigarettes, he's into heroin, he's, you know, got a, I mean, we're talking about since 1980 till certainly 2010 at least, you're talking three decades. So surely he is a billionaire because all these organised criminals we hear about are making so much money, they've licensed to print money and they don't know what to be doing with it. So where is the money? Well, the, I don't know how it works in Great Britain, but the, the the federal government in the United States, when they do a case against you, so his first big conviction was the DEA, and he was considered having like a French connection, if you remember that old movie, the French connection level heroin trafficking operation. Again, it, it was just ingenious. So this is this will give you a sense of the, the Jewish word is sechel. Um, it's, it means uh, street smarts, I guess, uh, brains. So they had an operation of bringing, if you remember in the 1980s, before there were flat screen TVs, there were these big bulky TVs. So they were legitimately going and buying in Singapore dozens and dozens of TV sets, probably hundreds, and they would take them by container ships into Antwerp. So what they decided to do was, well, we've got the TV sets anyway. If you take out the back, you can fit two kilos of pure heroin in the back there. Now, they didn't bring it to New York. What they did is they brought it into Antwerp, which is a huge container port, and then they got it to Warsaw. And then they had mules coming and just basically taking it on their bodies. And that went on for about a year until they some idiot recruited. Boris never wanted to touch the stuff personally, and he was selling it to Sicilians. But it worked because the DEA was not wise to the fact that why would heroin be coming in on flights from Warsaw? They just looked at the geography and they outsmarted the feds for so long. They, that operation was only taken down because this guy recruited two heroin users, two, two junkies to be mules. And of course, they've got, I think they each would take a kilo on their body somehow. They went into the bathroom on the on the Polish flight and started to shoot up. And I of said, course. Well, they've got pure heroin on themselves. And some some flight attendant reported them. So the <laughs> DEA took him down. He, he had Interpol... Uh, watching him, his villa outside of, uh, I think they watched him for a year. So once the feds, the way that works in the United States, once the feds arrest you, DEA or, or the FBI, they've got you, they've been watching you for two or three years and they've got you. You have, a, you have like a 99% conviction rate if you were even going to go to trial. And then they seize everything. So in the last case he had, it was 300 million. He, between he and his partners, there was... Um, Oh, there was villas in the south of France. That was Fancini's. There were yachts. It's all gone. Like everything gets seized. So no, he's broke. And people ask, well, so how do you... that was in 2009, Douglas, was yeah, it? That was, when he pleaded well, guilty to a count of conspiracy. That was launder. the last they took down. Um, his, his operation was, again, ingenious. So... I don't know if it's still true, but American cigarettes have always been very popular in, in Europe. Camel and Marlboro better than the... Yeah. 
Like, so they set up right there in Ukraine. Odessa was always the gangster city because it's a port. You just look at the geography. Dublin's a port. Liverpool's a port. Everywhere there's ports. You know, you're going to have smuggling. Odessa was the big port for the, and they call it Mama Odessa because even in the Russian Empire, before that was the heart of, of gangsterism. So he sets up this operation. And I said, well, how did it work? He goes, well, all we needed to do was make the Marlboro boxes and the Camel boxes. And we would take this really cheap, crappy Ukrainian tobacco. And then we had them in pallets and we'd sell them. Oh, London was a great market because of the taxes. And I said, yeah, but once people buy a carton, don't they realize it doesn't matter. We got their money. You know, it was, he said, you could not distinguish our boxes from the others. So I said, well, that's pretty, he goes, yeah, the profit from selling counterfeit cigarettes was comparable to cocaine. But meanwhile, while they're doing that, the feds took him down because while he was doing one of his earlier prison stints, he meets this guy named Roberto Alcaino, who was Pablo Escobar's money launderer. They're put together in the same prison. So, of course, they start talking about stuff like, well, what could we do together? The guy's actually Chilean and Jewish. And there's a film with Brian Cranston called The Infiltrator, which is all about him. He really was the main uh, money launderer for Pablo Escobar in New York City, buying apartments and stuff. So now Boris and he go into partnership and he says Roberto had connections to the real Colombians. This gets back to what the super cartels are. So they were going down to Colombia to get pure cocaine. They were going to get it into Odessa under the front of these cigarette and and the feds took him down as they were about to buy a thousand kilos. And actually he goes, it was just a test run. We hadn't even done it yet. It was just going to be a thousand kilos. And I said, just a thousand. Okay. Cause it, he thought it was going to be this massive pipeline and they could distribute cocaine to all of Russia, Poland. I mean, it's no mystery by the way, that cocaine is a very popular drug all through Europe. I mean, so somebody, you know, the biggest rationalization, uh, Boris, Every drug dealer I've ever talked to, I said, well, didn't you think, you know, you don't have any respect for people who use drugs? No, but somebody's going to sell it to them. If not, if not me, then who, someone else is going to supply it. So that's his view of it. But yeah, and that, so they took him down. He threw this lavish 60th birthday party for himself. And Russians are like Italians and in that they don't bring per birthday presents. They bring cash, you know, envelopes of cash, like just like you see in the mafia movies. So it was this really lavish birthday party with Roberto Alcaino and a whole bunch of Italian gangsters and Russian gangsters. And meanwhile, it's completely being surveilled by the FBI, the DEA. Everybody's being videotaped. And then they all get drunk until five in the morning. They go back to Boris's mansion on Staten Island and that he says, we were just waiting till about noon to, to do the hangover cure, which is, you know, go out and start drinking again. And the feds busted in at seven in the morning or six in the morning, machine guns everywhere. Where's the, he's not stupid enough to have drugs in his house or guns in his house. So they didn't have any of that, but they found, I think it was $20,000 in cash. And they start going and his wife is screaming, those are his birthday presents. Those are, and, and I was laughing because I looked at it. He goes, I never got back my birthday presents. And in this massive indictment, which goes on for, I don't know, 300 pages. It lists all the assets. Fancini had a house in Mayfair. So it was famous paintings. They were all taken down in the same conspiracy. But then also vouchered there was the, sorry, it wasn't 20,000. It was over $10,000 US that Boris is yelling at me still. That's my birthday money. Can't they give it back to me? You, if you can't prove that you got it legally, it's all gone. So the house is gone. The, the Bentley, yeah, I mean, he had all the trappings of success. But you do not die a rich gangster unless you really are under the radar. I mean, there's very few. The only one I can think of in the history of the American mafia was Carlo Gambino. But he lived in a very simple house. You know, this lavish stuff that we've, we're conditioned to see from all these movies of guys living large and, and, and jet setting. Well, 
once they get you, they take everything. The seizure laws are very, very strict. And it's gone like in the in the flash of it. You know, it's 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 just gone so quickly overnight. Everything that had been built up um, like that sounds like in my little world, sometimes if I'm invited to a wedding or something and I ha- I want to give cash, I do flounder about how much is enough. You yeah, know? yeah, how yeah. Much how much like, should you bring? <laughs> <laughs> what the hell do you do if you're invited to Boris's birthday? I'm not I mean, sure how much is a... Pro- how uh, much is enough? Well, I've, he only got 10,000. I'm surprised. That's a shit amount of money for somebody. Yeah, back in it's, not, it's not a lot, but, you, you, no. you know, maybe it wasn't all of it. I'm not sure. I mean, it's just sort yeah. of a token of respect. I, I'm assuming that you... Uh, the envelopes that are given at Italian weddings are the same thing. But Well, if um, we're ever invited to one, maybe you might investigate that further <laughs> so we don't make, embarrass ourselves, you know? But it's so, it's, um, so fun, it's so funny because when you would talk, you asked me about that, he would say, so this M&S, this, this uh, import-export business that was headquartered in the Diamond District of uh, Antwerp, Boris, for his 10%, which was protection, he said, look, that was my best period. I had a Bentley, I had a villa, and my legitimate salary was 100,000 US back in the 80s, or late late 80s, 100,000 US a month was my legitimate salary. And I'm not sure, like, well, is that legitimate? I mean, is that, so a million plus, um, usually paid in cash, but uh, yeah, easy come, easy go. I mean, I don't, I don't, are the laws the same in the UK when they take down a big racketeering? When they, I mean, the US has these very strict conspiracy laws, racketeering laws, right? And they, all you have to do is be remotely connected to the, I mean, not even, but you don't have to meet the guy, let's say, who was buying the drugs. You, Boris's conception of the law, he always says this to me, he goes, in the Soviet Union, you needed to be caught red-handed. Like, mm-hmm. I never touched the, he was so mad about this. He said, I never touched the drugs. I never was even in the room with the drugs. My understanding of the U.S. law was was so based on Hollywood movies. I thought you got arrested and that you got some big defense lawyer and you paid him a lot of money and he beat the case. I didn't understand that they have all these wire, like, he was really naive. Like, he really thought... I guess in the Russian criminal system, you know, to be caught uh, for murder, you, you you didn't have to just say to a guy, hey, you know, be good if he was taken, uh, taken out. You had to be the guy who had the gun or whatever. Boris had no conception, and none of these Russians did actually, how vast and sweeping the racketeering laws are. You just have mm-hmm. to have, you know, had a meeting with somebody and the conspiracy could encompass you in something that you re- really actually didn't do. It, because that's, well, that's the strength I mean, the the RICO, which is the Racketeer Influence Corruption Act, they had to bring that up because, of course, the Italian mafia bosses, Al Capone and all these guys, they were never pulling the trigger. And a lot of times they weren't even stupid enough to be in the room with the guy that was giving the order. They would just give a little nod. You know, he's got to go, you know. Um, so I don't know. Does Did Ireland, I mean, Great Britain is different, I know, but the Republic of Ireland, do they have conspiracy laws in that sense? Well, what we have is a separate thing called the Criminal Assets Bureau, which goes after their assets so they can go after them, whether they have a conviction or not. Civil cases. So the ballot, you know, the 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 proof lies with the person, the individual that the the, you know, the house or the car has been taken off. They have to prove how they legitimately earned it. Yeah. Um, But you don't see 300 million cases. You know what I mean? We don't see that. We see we see properties in that. And I think actually the biggest problem is that because most Irish gangsters don't really stay in Ireland, they eventually go to Europe or beyond, that we don't even in Europe have a joining up of, uh, you know, laws, racketeering laws, whereas in the States, you can just sweep up everything. 
Well, I've noticed your guys, your your bad guys are in Dubai because yeah. they're five million dollar reward by the U.S. and I don't think Dubai has any extradition issue with, uh, with the United. They don't have an extradition treaty with the United States, so it always struck uh, me. Anyone. Yeah, the the U.S. was pretty smart in terms of um, like Canada has the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. You know, Great Britain has. Uh, Ireland has its national, but the U.S. has all these, This we call it the alphabet soup, right? Drug Enforcement Administration, alcohol, alcohol tobacco, firearms. They go after the outlaw bikers, the Hells Angels. Then they have uh, Homeland Security. Then they have, people don't realize this, the social, uh, sorry, the Secret Service, which protects the president. They do counterfeiting cases. So at one point, Boris was counterfeiting money as well. Oh, that's another thing he was into, counterfeiting. They were they were bringing, they had an operation, I think, out of Munich, where they could make beautiful U.S. hundred dollar bills that were indistinguishable, and they were, but they could, they had buyers down in Sierra Leone, so five hundred thousand they could of fake money, they could get two hundred thousand real. But um, this one of one of Boris's co-conspirators got arrested at Gatwick because the, the customs decided to look closely at the money, so he ended up doing. Um, by the way, this is a guy named Shafarovsky, whose son was named Felix Sater, who's connected to Donald Trump. So okay. the layer, the, the layers of the stuff. People were asking these questions: How did these guys connect to Donald Trump? And I said, Well, they surround him. I mean, it's all through this. I hate to get too, but. And uh, also, Boris and all these Russian gangsters love Donald Trump. They just loved him. I mean, I, I would talk to them and they say, Trump is amazing. And they also, by the way, people have asked me, what is their view of this Ukraine war? And, I, and uh, Boris said to me, this is a bull. I can curse, right? He, he said to me, um, Doug, why is NATO starting this business? I said, huh? We're not starting anything. What are you talking about? He goes, this is bullshit country. This is not real country. And I said, okay. In Russian, the word Ukraine literally means borderlands. And from the time of Catherine the Great. So guys like Boris would say, you know, this is not a real country. I said, well, yeah, it is. And then I said, uh, then, he, then he always, his next rhetorical uh, device is, you know, this is very anti-Semite country. And I said, okay, yes, it, during the Holocaust, many of the guards, there, there were camp guards who were, I said, but come on, Boris, it's a different age. The president is Jewish. He said, Jewish, this guy is fucking clown. He's TV actor. So his, he has all the state propaganda. Yes. He goes, why are you stopping us from taking back our borderlands? And I was like, I'm not stopping you from doing anything. I'm just telling you how the rest of the world sees it. <laughs> but yeah, and they view Putin. Um, I've been asked this a lot, by the way. What do Boris and these guys think of Putin? Putin's a, a, a crook and he's a gang. He's mobbed up. He's very, very closely affiliated with organized crime. But there's one thing about him. He's not anti-Semitic. Many of those oligarchs, many, many, many are Jewish. Not just Roman Abramovich, there's the Arkady, uh, Arkady Rottenberg. He's, he had a lot of Jewish friends, and everybody thinks that these oligarchs, which are also connected to organized crime, they're very connected to, Boris has been to the parties with these guys. They're very, very, very closely, I would call them oligarch gangsters. They're, it's, they're so active in money laundering and other things. Or, uh, Putin made them all billionaires, so they're very loyal to him, and many of them are Jewish. So... There's a very complex thing with what's going on in Russia now, which is that as much as Putin is emulating Stalin and other horrible people, for these Jewish, uh, Soviet emigrate Jewish guys, they don't dislike him because the one thing he's not is anti-Jewish. He's very, he's got a lot of Jewish friends. So on that level, I guess they, they apologize for it. But I, it, it's, it's, a, it's a window into this mentality that I don't understand because 
every every rational person in the world, I would think, is thinks that this invasion of Ukraine is horrific, but not Boris, uh, not Boris's uh, generation. They all think they're just taking back a country that was never a real country. That was always their border. And I said, well, you're not you're not seeing it the way the rest of the world is. How long were you hanging out with Boris? Oh, God, a few years. Yeah. And it was a- so did you, you know, I think kind of when you're working with or around criminals, you always have to constantly remind yourself that uh, you can't apply your own logic and maybe morals to to them. Yeah. Um, did you see the really bad side of him? I mean, you heard it. He told you stories. Obviously, you were probably sitting there with your mouth open. Did he ever turn on you? Is there ever any point that you insulted him or did he? No, no, I was very careful because first of all, you know, I'm in my fifties now. I wrote my first book about gangsters in my thirties. And then I got, I mean, I know to this day, I know a, you know, a made guy in the Bonanno crime family. I brought my daughter over. He, he calls me up. I won't name him. He's a powerful guy in the Bonanno crime family in New York. And he calls me up. He says, Doug, do you mind coming by? My daughter Miranda is applying to the university. Uh, I could use a letter of recommendation. And this guy did a murder. Like he's just out. So I come over and I say, we're going to Uncle Pat's. And just like in the movies, he's making chicken Parmesan. His wife's there. And, and I'm typing up this letter of recommendation. Then he goes, and Doug, while you're at it, you know, I could use, use a letter from my judge, you know, because I'm coming up for that parole thing. And I was like, oh, okay. And then we left and I said to my daughter, I said, what do you think of Pat? Oh God, he's the sweetest guy. Uncle Pat, he's, he made this chicken Parmesan. And, and I said, so, you know, he's a mobster and he's convicted of murder. And the one thing he, I remember him saying is, I can't watch that shit, The Sopranos. I said, why? He goes, do you ever see me curse in front of my wife? I said, no, you're right. So I know how to hang out with these guys. Like it's, there's a kind of code, like you don't use for profanity in front of their wives. It's a kind of, you know, you have to know that. Uh, the only time I felt in any way dan- uh, danger around Boris, I'll never forget this. We, he wanted me to walk around the boardwalk with him. And you really see these old Russians playing chess. And he wanted me to meet these guys. But I saw how afraid they were of him. Like they didn't, Russians don't show their fear. There's a kind of characteristic about, about Russians. They don't smile unless they know you really well. They always look dour and it's just, I don't know, cultural. So we walk up and I can kind of see he's interacting with them in Russian. I don't speak Russian, but I can also see they're afraid of him. And then I also remembered how many times people tried to kill him. So then I thought, oh my God, what if I'm just collateral damage and like idiot (laughs) shot on boardwalk while hanging out with notorious Russian gangster? (laughs) I mean, I'm sorry, like just just to reference here, would you really want to be uh, at, a, at a casino with the, you know, yeah. the, Kinahan, the Kinahan clan and you're just like, hey, my arms are on his shoulders when there's a hit going down. I mean, these are not these are not places where you were necessarily safe. But, no, he, you know, he wanted his story told. So he was, you know, I think I gave, gave an honest portrayal. I called BS when he, when I thought he was lying or not lying, spinning. I would say say so. But, you know, he wanted his story told for posterity. So I kind of said, you know. Uh, I think every criminal I've ever known has a certain type, which is narcissism, um, even organized criminals. They don't have that. um, What do they call it now? There's a term in psychology, you know, uh, deferred gratification or delayed. I'll work for this. They want it now. They feel entitled to it now. And they're so used to getting it now that they like they're women. They want the Boris just met his second young wife just by grabbing her off the dance floor. She was 18. And he said, "Okay, we're just taking things and impatience and and hubris. And that's their downfall. But the narcissism really plays into your advantage if you're a writer, because they want to tell you their story. 
right? Mm -hmm. Eventually, at a certain time in their life when they can, because you rarely, rarely see somebody younger sitting down with them. I mean, even you're talking about these sort of, you know, what not to say in front of their wives, you know, how to behave. But would you know in the same way how to behave with the young, a younger crew? And younger guys, that's the thing, because he's in his 70s. I was I was I met him when he was 70 and he was just out on still on bail for this crazy murder for hiring. Like he was hired as a hitman. I mean, he was down on the like we say in New York, on the balls of his ass. He had no money. So somebody like enlists him in a in a crazy divorce. And you can see this picture in the New York tabloids. It says crazy old geezer hitman or, you know, scary old geezer hitman. He's 67 years old and he's he's like busted by the FBI. Um in a conspiracy to take out an unwanted son-in-law by a very wealthy guy. (laughs) And I said, so I met him around that time and he was still on parole, but yeah, he was in the twilight of his years. And he actually said to me, I don't know how much longer I have. I think I've outlived how long, you know, and I think the idea that I was going to document his life and, you know, nobody had access. Somebody, a a Russian uh, documentary maker wants to adapt my book. And he said, Doug, what you got here, very few of these Russian guys will talk. And they certainly don't talk to strangers and they don't really talk about the reality of that world. So we've only ever seen cartoons of it. So the access I got, it was kind of this um, this marriage of convenience or opportunities that I was ready to do this. And he he knows, like, I don't have much longer to live. And he's also very aware that he's got so many enemies. He'll tell me it was a very sad thing where he said, a guy like me never really goes into retirement, meaning the enemies I've made 20, 30 years ago are still my enemies. The only time I ever feel at ease is like on somebody's boat in the Black Sea. So I know nobody. He's always vigilant. And he says, I have to stay this way for the rest of my life until God calls me. And I said, that's not a happy life. <laughs> no. So at the end of it, like we always say, is it a cautionary tale? All I think all good crime books, all good crime movies, everything should be a cautionary tale. I mean, there really isn't a happy ending in that world. No, and, um, you know, I suppose they richer and more, you know, powerful they become, the smaller their worlds become. You know, they they desire something, but actually they end up in a tiny little sort of gilded cage almost. Um, well, many of them anyway. The ones that probably you and I know about do. The ones that we don't know about are probably having a, fantastic retirement. Um, But finally, Douglas Century and an amazing book, The Last Boss of Brighton, really colourful, vivid, uh, incredible story and history there. Do you think that Boris Biba-Neyfeld will die of natural causes or will he also go the way most gangsters do? You know, it's a very interesting question. He's such a survivor. He sends me the, you know, we, we communicate via WhatsApp when he's in Russia and he's always, he's with younger criminals and he'll say, Doug, it's not like I'm actually taxi driver now, you know, like, I, I don't want to know. I don't know what you're doing. Cause he says he's living off his pension, right? His social security. But then he'll, he'll say, I'm just, I'm too old, Doug. I'm just an elder statesman to these guys. I give younger criminals advice. And I know because he's at these nice parties and he's staying in a Dasha and, um, you know, all he said to me, all I want to do is die in my own bed. Like he actually said that. I said, wow, what a golden life. Like, meaning I don't want to get killed in a hail of bullets and I don't want to end up in prison. Um, he's done his, he's done, I don't know, three stints in the U.S. prison, did that Russian. You know, prison doesn't f- scare him, but I think 
you know, the isolation and the loneliness. Um, but, you know, if you read my book, I, I didn't mean it to be this way, but I thought, oh my God, you could teach this in a psychology course on just the making of a antisocial personality because all of the disconnects from childhood. I mean, he's at this point, I'm sorry for one last digression, but this is the kind of, this is the kind of journalistic, I think, humor I used. He would tell me like he got out of serving in the Russian army because you had to still serve up until 27. So he's done three years in the zone and he comes and he says, while I was in the zone, we had a book on psychology somebody had, and I studied up the best way to get out of serving the military was article seven B psychopathy. So I came before the mil the military psychiatrist and I put on all the symptoms of, uh, of a psychopath. And he said, you have psychopathy. We can't allow a person like you to carry a gun. <laughs> and then I wrote, of course, it's entirely probable that the military psychiatrist merely looked at his record and looked at his personality. But, um, you know, guys like this, I always say this about all gangsters. There's either you die broke, which is, you know, one, one avenue that a lot of these guys do die without money and that with their war stories in the pub, you know, I met a few of these, what you call villains over there and actually in Kilburn and those places in London, and they got those, you know, glassing scars and you're like, oh, he was a big gangster, but they have no, you know, or they end up in prison or they end up in a hail of bullets. Uh, I'd like to think Boris dies of natural causes. I mean, I think he actually is retired. He's not actually hurting people anymore, but you know, it's a numbers game. I would say the fact that he's lived as long as he has till 74 and he's so fit and strong. I mean, he's stronger than I am. Like he, I can't chop down a forest. <laughs> I watched him chop down a forest day by day. He would send me pictures of the firewood he was. Hey, so he's a very strong, strong character. I would say if he doesn't slip up and do something silly, like get caught giving advice to younger criminals, stop doing that, Boris. Um, Cause that advice could come back, but you know, he's back in Russia now, which is a safer place for him to be because criminality is kind of the norm. I mean, Russia, you know, there are a lot of organized crime groups that are now just part of politics. So he's over there in a, in a culture where mm, it's a gray zone. How much is politics? How much is, is crime? If he were to live in, uh, in the United States still, I think he'd, he'd probably end up in, I think he'd end up in prison again. He would, he'd, he'd slip up and talk to the wrong people because he needs to be around the action all the time. He's a guy that's in, it's like the great white shark that can't stop swimming or else they die. He's got to be in motion. Like he's bored. And even at this age, he'll tell me, Doug, next week I will be in Siberia after that Kazakhstan. I don't ask what he's doing traveling all over the place, but he's got some operations. So I wish him, I wish him a long life to be the Jewish toast is uh, you should live to be 120. Um, <laughs> I, hope he, I hope he makes it, you know. Well, look, crime, I, I've always believed is an addiction for many and, uh, it sounds like certainly he's one of those. But look, Douglas Century, fantastic, interesting discussion. You and I seem to be a little bit train spottery when it comes to criminals. <laughs> we won't bore the listeners with any more of this, but uh, we have plenty to talk about in the future. That'd be great. So thank you very much. Well, thank you so much for having me on. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com, produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Clodamini. If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. Or why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. <laughs>